an indictment on my work ethic, like I couldn't wear this hat or something. Um, it's so good to be outside in God's creation and uh, have a little bit of backdrop. Um, the worship team says we put this out here in the heat that it might shorten the sermon, but I wore this hat and I feel good, all right? Um, first thing, um, uh, this weekend, uh, my family and some from our house church and some others uh, went camping, and uh, I see that a few of them are not here, and so let's point that out right out the gate. And, uh, and so uh, we took, I got five kids, and we loaded up to go camping. And now camping's not my wife's thing, um, so she kind of uh, began to make food like we were going to be at home. We began to load gear, all right, start getting enough tents for seven of us, and we're loading bicycles and fishing rods. I mean, we basically create a caravan like we're going to live out there for a month. We stayed one night, all right? And so we get out there, and we begin to camp, and just like normal, uh, our kids decided, you know, not to sleep for half the time. Have you ever um, taken or been camping, and has it ever occurred to you to ask the question, why are we doing this? Like, could you explain it to someone in a third world country that doesn't have a house like you have a house? Say, so what do you Americans do for leisure? Well, we leave our house where there's air conditioning. Well, probably not. It's Colorado. We leave our house where there is food and energy, and we go out into the woods. Is there bears? Absolutely. And what do you do while you're out there? We just basically, we kill bugs. Um, the kids complain the whole time. It's pretty great. I get upset because they set up the tent wrong and end up having to repent to my kids because I yelled at them and stuff. And it's like, well, why do you do that? Because it's a vacation. Could you imagine trying to explain that to anybody else? And I get it. Unless you have a philosophy or a perspective that it's good, especially for some of you Colorado people that's been indoors all winter and you've gotten like a whole other shade of pasty, all right? You need that vitamin D. I get it. Unless you have some sort of reason to get out there, you know, like we want to be in creation, we want to teach our kids how to fish. I get all that. It almost makes no sense to go camping, all right? But the worst thing than camping is coming back, is it not, and having to unload all that junk? Anybody? And you come back and you're exhausted. You slept four hours on the ground, right? Or at least my family did. I, I brought a hammock. They forgot theirs. All right, and you set out there and you come back and you're totally exhausted and you've got to put away food, you've got to empty ice chest, you've got to do all this stuff and you're like, you're already like running on fumes. I tell that story because it relates to what is going to happen in contextually in Jesus feeding the 5,000. One thing that we don't recognize oftentimes from this passage is that they're not coming into this account fresh, well-slept, and, and like fed, and, and like they're, they're not coming at it from their best position possible. They're coming at it exhausted. Now, let me, let me give you an example of why this is important for us, and then we're going to jump in the text. I think for some of us in here, in our own strength, we can fake it like we're Christians. What I mean by that is, if, you have, if you've had a full belly Right? You went down to Texas Roadhouse, you ate the rolls, you got the prime rib, you've had a good meal, 
you got too much sleep almost, like that nine, 10 hours. I know this is mythological for some of you. You got nine, 10 hours of sleep. Your kids wake up and they're perfect. They dress themselves. They're not fighting. In the perfect conditions, you can maybe fake it that you're a Christian. What, what are we saying here? 10 minutes? Is 30 a stretch? But when put in circumstances where we haven't, we've poured ourselves out, we're exhausted. There's pain in our body. We've went from one frustration to the next frustration to the next frustration. We've had success. We've had this. Work is calling. We got family dying. We, get, we put all of that together. Now we get to the place that without the Holy Spirit, you can't even fake it. Amen or oh me. So let's come to this thing about where the disciples are going to follow Jesus past the point of exhaustion. All right. Uh, some of us may be there. And so let's pray and ask for God just to help us. Would you do that? Would you assume a posture of humility before the Lord? I know we're outside and there's, there's distractions maybe behind us. It may be hot or other things out here. Would you, would you turn your mind away from the things on the outside and turn your heart to the things on the inside? Would you ask God to be your teacher today? To till up the soil of your heart? That you might actually be able to receive something here today that you wouldn't otherwise? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us, O oh God, your ways. We won't know your ways unless you reveal them through your word by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and illumine the minds of my brothers and sisters and our friends that have joined us here. Come and anoint the preaching of your word in such a way that it might be clear, concise, and accurate to what you originally authored in this passage and in this text. God, without your help, and aid, we are left helpless to our own understanding, which does nothing to profit us in your word. And so God, come and supernaturally bring humility, focus, understanding, utterance, and unction. God, thank you for your word that takes us out of the dark and into the light. Doesn't leave us clueless, but gives us a clue. Help it all to be about Jesus in the gospel. May he be explicit. We pray in Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. We study the Bible here. We've been going through the gospel of Mark. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, open it to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. As you flip there, let me throw you a couple, um, let's just jog a little bit about what, where we've been. God, in the Son, gave authority to the disciples and sent them out to preach. The disciples go out to preach with this delegated authority and they preach in such a way that the government has to take notice. And we said this, some of us need to just go out there and preach the word so faithfully and clearly and passionately that it kind of just shakes things up inside of government. That's what happens with Herod hearing the report of what these dudes are out there preaching. And so 
what we get then is a kind of breakdown, a sandwiching, if you will, from them being sent out to preach the account of Herod beheading the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. This is important because he's putting two stories up next to each other. The sacrifice and the service of Christians and the decadence of political leaders. And so in one sense, you get a lustful, striptease dance for political leaders and things of the flesh in one account. And in the other, you get sacrifice and service. I must have said something that some of the babies didn't like. Hey, man, if it convicts you, little ones, y'all just get right. Actually, I think one of them was my kid, and last time I checked, he wasn't wearing a shirt. Um, So you get these two accounts that are meant to be put up next to one another, right? And this decadence versus holy sacrifice and work. The other thing that now we're going to get into is that Herod is throwing a political dinner with red carpet and who's who. Jesus is going to have the common people come to him and throw a good old family fish fry. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so these two types of parties are going to kind of be laced up next to each other. So let's look in verse 30 and we'll jump into it. This is the ending of the sandwich and the disciples returning from their missional journey. Verse 30, the apostles, apostle just means those that are sent out. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Push pause. So we said that insecure leaders can never delegate like Jesus delegates. Jesus has this way of raising people up, which if we were honest about the disciples, if we've kind of studied who they are in their lives, ain't nobody believing in these guys but Jesus. He raises up a bunch of nobodies to preach about the somebody, right? So he raises the disciples up and gives them authority that frankly, as leadership in this church, we would be nervous about giving these cats authority. He, but, and so that goes as an important saying that Jesus is secure enough to delegate his authority to others. But let's come to the next part of that. The other side of delegated authority is accountability. See, there's some in our church that want tons of authority delegated to them in our church, but they don't want to be accountable for whether they're teaching and doing the things that Jesus has set out for them to do. Amen? It says that they came back for a debrief. They're going to do a talkback session. Jesus has sent them out. Now Jesus is bringing them in for a session. Say, how did it go? What did you teach? What did you do? And they report to Jesus all that two things, all that they had done and all that they had taught. Church, let me tell you this. If you are out there walking and serving God in ministry or serving God in your family, and you got nobody that you answer to about what you're doing and what you're teaching, that's a massive problem. Because when it comes to you leaving the trail and doing a bunch of destructive things for people in your family or in your ministry, and can't nobody hold you accountable to the scriptures, that's a problem, amen? So here's the thing that we want to strike a balance leadership in this church. We want to have great delegation in raising people up. And then on the other side of it, we want to have great, balanced, loving accountability. Amen? If you have tons of accountability, but you never delegate authority, you're not going to have people to eventually, you know, to hold accountable. You're going to run the thing in the ground. 
If you're delegating all the time and sending people out, but you're not holding them accountable to do what you wanted them to do, right? Eventually, they're going to be doing a bunch of stuff that's counterproductive for the kingdom. So there's a balance here between Jesus giving authority and then Jesus holding people accountable. And I would say this, as a church, you want to have elders and pastors and deacons and leadership and house church leaders that are pushing you and that are also holding you accountable because they love you. You hear me? All right, so let's keep going. He returned to them and told them all that he had done and taught. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And rest a while. For, here's the reason why they need a break. Many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And all the mamas in the house just took a deep breath and said, my baby isn't even eating? What's they doing out there? Right? Not even time to eat? Some of you are like, I'll do ministry as long as I get a good meal out of it. Apparently, like, sometimes you got to do ministry in such a way to skip meals. So what's the context of this situation? Jesus' cousin had been beheaded. Jesus' cousin is John the Baptist, someone that played a role in his life and ministry. Now, if I think about this in my own cousins, I got cousins that are, to me, like brothers. And if they were to perish, it would take me time to mourn. The disciples had just been on, they'd just been on a mission trip and they just flew in on the red-eye flight. They had just done the most work for the kingdom of God they had ever done. They had never done this much. So Jesus, don't break them, don't overwhelm them, don't give them too much. The disciples are coming back from a mission trip. They are absolutely exhausted and they are done. Jesus, in this passage, acknowledges that it's a good time to take a break. It's otherwise appropriate for them to rest. It's a good stopping point. It's time for a sabbatical. It's a getaway. It's a coffee break. It's a vacation. It's time to recharge the batteries. You've been pushing hard for a long time. You've been camping. You need a siesta. I always thought this is weird. We lived in Europe for uh, a few years. In Europe, they take a two-hour lunch break, right? It's the most un-American thing they could do. Those Europeans hadn't figured out how to be Americans and work through lunch, lunch yet. So why do they need a break? Because many were coming and going. Listen, my introverts in the house, they get this. For some of us that are, we don't get our batteries charged around people, to be constantly around people can be draining for us. Amen? And it says that many people were coming and going. And so it's like at house church where you're like, you don't got to stay here, but you got to go somewhere. Right? It just starts to get dra- There's just too many people. They're emotionally spent. They're exhausted. Such to the point that they're too busy to eat. Now, look, we've taught here at this church, rest is holy. It's godly. It's something that's righteous. Being a workaholic is not holy. It's not. Jesus would say, he would paint it completely different. Rest has its place. And he says, come away to a, the the scriptures are going to say, if I can get it out of the wind, no leisure to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Come away to a desolate place, to a quiet place and rest a while. Now, for some of us, especially the kids in the house, 
If I said, let's go on a vacation to a quiet place, kids would be like, that sounds like punishment. Right? Time out. For the adults in the room that's like, hey, you're going to have a place just where it's going to be quiet. You're like, boy, that sounds like that's a holy place. Right? Quiet, peace and quiet, vacation, rest, time to process, to think, to pray, get away to it. As you get older and mature, isn't a quiet place just seem like pure, like pure vacation? Right? Come away to a desolate, quiet place and rest. Silence is, and maybe a pause from the crowd is what he's offering. Especially for us that have gadgets in our phone that can constant, or in our pocket that could make constant noise. What is it for us to turn the computer off, to turn the phone off, go full Amish, and just like unplug for a little bit? Right? Where we don't, we don't have constant noise in the background, but we, we're just, we're like, we're stepping back to where the still small voice of God is at least an option. What does it mean to come away with Jesus to a desolate, quiet place with him? Now, I want to say something uh, th- that's just me. This is kind of a side note. As a kid who kind of grew up outside the church, my mom was a bartender. I experienced the church a little bit, but it was, I was mostly on the outside looking in. I never understood obese pastors. Like, I never got it. Like, I, like I would come to church, and a guy with a 46-inch waist is going to tell me about having discipline with sex and drugs. Like, I didn't get it. What, and I have to kind of, like, I gotta, I'm just being real. Is that okay? Was that too real? Y'all looking at me. Um, you're like, your waist is not small. I'm, I get it, okay? It's a pot calling the kettle black. Okay, I didn't get it as a kid. But now in ministry, the Lord in his strange providence has brought me to this position I have to ask for, I totally get it, right? Because you wake up in ministry and you deal with other people's problems and rightly so, I should take those problems to the cross like I do my own problems. But let me just be real with you. Sometimes I don't and I just carry other people's burdens and it just weighs me down. Or you you get involved with projects or emails or you get studying and you forget, I've done this, I've forgotten to eat and then you show up to a church event, and here's the one thing that all church events have, hot dogs. So you just go 17 hot dogs deep in fixing your stress problems, right? Like you're in some sort of eating contest that they're not giving awards out for, all right? And, and so in ministry, you can stress eat, and you can, you can skip meals, and you can develop unhealthy patterns and habits. And so I totally get that if, if you don't watch after your physical care, you can get in a you can get off the path. Is everybody okay with this so far? So here's the deal. Um, inside of this, it goes even further. Some churches do this differently. Should the pastor have regular hours where they're at? And then on top of that, you attend meetings, I don't know, like every single night. Then on top of that, people have your personal cell phone number and they can text you at like 1230 at night. If you ever wonder why there is an astronomical number of ministers that are burning out today, it's because... There is no way to juggle family, juggle ministry, and eat. you got to cho- choose some of that, right? And so this is exactly the same dynamic that is possible within the disciples. They try to exit stage left, and the circus follows them. The day off, well, look at it, verse 32. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Sorry, I got to stay in this mic. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. When they got ahead and went to shore, he, Jesus, saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So pause right here. Here's what just happened in the disciples' mind. Vacation just got canceled. You packed all your bags for the vacation, for the getaway, and as you go to the flight, you get that one phone call that you can't get, and now all of a sudden you're not going on vacation, you're going to go work overtime. Can you feel what's happening inside of their hearts? Coffee break is off. No coffee ever again, right? Like there is no, there is no break coming. There's no day off. Instead, who here has ever gotten a call on their day off saying you need to come into work? Right? Anybody ever got that phone call? Is there a worse feeling? This is where the disciples are at. They're going across the ocean or off the Sea of Galilee. And as they're rowing, which they row and the people on land catch them on foot. Which, a couple things. Maybe they need to get on that row machine, Jacob, at CrossFit and get their row game up, right? Or B, they're being chased down by a bunch of Kenyans, all right? I don't know what's happening. Or it could be a combination of the two. You got some very unmotivated rowing combined with people that are very passionately tracking them down. And you might ask the question, how did they find where they were going? Most theologians say they were on one side of the lake and they don't go to the other side. They go up north. So it was easy for the crowd to catch them. People that lived on this lake would understand there's only certain places they're going to port. Another way to say this, I heard this this week, uh, that actually the editor of a scientific magazine was able to figure out where the Manhattan Project was taking place simply because certain subscribers to his magazine all moved out in the desert at the same time. If they can figure that out, I promise you they can figure out where this boat is going. Right? By the way, Ronnie, wasn't it true that these buildings here were in the men, in the bombing, that these were like the bomb, they were going to blow them up, but instead they donated them to our church? I think that's a church rumor. Um, now we want to give them back to the bombs. Um, so here's what happens. The Kenyans run them down. They land on shore. The disciples get there, and you can almost feel them being like, no, Jesus, don't look at the crowd. Don't look at them. Get back in the boat, right? We'll take a carnival cruise to the south side of the lake. Instead, Jesus looks at them, and it says it was a great crowd, which it's going to be 5,000 men, which some theologians say with women and children, you're probably looking at 15, 20,000 maybe people. The response to the greatness of this crowd is, look in your Bible. Look what it says that he did. It doesn't point out miracles. It's going to get there. It says that he began to teach them. It says that he began to teach them. Later, it's gonna, he's going to have them on green grass. Just kind of like I think about what we got out here. What a great teaching illustration. By the way, if the sermon goes real long, it, the kids will start rolling down. If it starts going super long, the adults start to roll down the grass. Right? Doesn't, doesn't it? And it'll recall... He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Later, it says he's going to put them down. Your Bible's going to say green grass. This is trying to alert them that he is the shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in 
green pastures. This is a picture of the 23rd Psalm. And as important as rest is, as holy as vacation is, the Word of God is more holy and it's more important. And that's tough to say whenever we're exhausted, isn't it? When we're running on fumes. It says that he had compassion on them. This word compassion in Greek is bigger than just simple concern or empathy. It says that it rocked him. It gutted him. It says that it moved him. It says that he walked into Walmart and he saw how lost the people were. He saw the great mass of people on Black Friday in Walmart and it gutted him that people were so idolatrous. It says that he went to a Rockies game and he realized not that they were all cheering for the wrong team. He goes into the game, he sees these people and so many people and he cares about people. They don't know they're sheep without a shepherd. They don't know their creator, so they don't know who they are as a creation. You want to talk about why we chase the idols we chase? Because we don't know who we are. And so we'll follow any liar. His heart breaks because these people are out of joint with their creator. They're chasing the very sins that will kill them. They have no lasting peace. They have no eternal purpose. They just chase dopamine fix after dopamine fix after dopamine fix. They're looking for entertainment. Here's the thing that I want to say about Jesus. His heart is not dead. It still moves. And it moves for people. Do you care about people enough to skip your vacation? Because I know for some of us in here, we wouldn't. They have no purpose because they got no shepherd. Just people moving aimlessly. They don't know they're created, they're creator, so they don't know what they're created for. They don't know who they are, so they just wander lost. This is the message. The message of the gospel is more important than temporary rest. Rest is important, it's godly, and it has its place, but the message is more important and more godly, and it has its place and timing right here. Jesus keeps doing this. The physical body and the healing of their physical ailments is important, it has its place. One day, at the end of time, God is going to heal all of our bodies and there will be no more sickness and death. That's important. What's more important is spiritual, eternal healing of the soul, without which none of that's ever coming. Food is important. Physical food for your body is important. Amen? What he's saying is, is as important as good as that is, spiritual food is more important. I don't know how to say this, but as America, if you've ever been to other countries, we have more jobs and money and cars and food than we could ever want. And yet without purpose and meaning, what does it matter, church? Make all the money you could ever want, have all the food you could ever eat. But if you don't have a purpose in life, 
rich people kill themselves. There's slow versions of suicide and there's quick versions. This is why Jesus is going to teach us that the heart and what he's preaching in this message to their heart is more important than any physical need it could be compared to. And it's not to say that those things are not good or important, but it's this is most important. It's superlative. Are you tracking? This is yes, this is no. I don't think that for most of us, we would have guessed that if Jesus saw a crowd this huge, that he would have went to teach them. But see, that is the most critical need that they have. Do you realize that's the most critical need I have is to be taught by Jesus? Not that the ankle I rolled two weeks ago heals, right? Not my next meal is not the most critical need that I have. The most critical need I have is for the word of God to teach me. Boy, you get this, you get everything. He elevates the gospel above everything. Christians care about all needs that our neighbors have especially eternal needs. Amen? Christians care about all needs, whether that's our neighbors needing food or water or a friend. We care about all needs, especially eternal needs. And we get this from our master. So 35, look there. It's getting hot up here. All right. When it grew late, his disciples said to him, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send away, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy something, buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. That's nuts right there. All right. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii? That's roughly about eight months of work. Worth of bread to give them something to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. What's interesting about this story is it's there's only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. This one and the resurrection. And he says, go find whatever. What's fascinating is he says, we're going to feed all these people. Disciples look around and say, I don't know who you're talking about. We like you better. You better get that straight. He says, here's what the disciples do. Jarrett, they do the accounting. They run the numbers, right? They go and the numbers don't add up. We could literally have people work for a whole year and they wouldn't make enough money to give half a fish stick to everybody, right? Like we, we got one bag of goldfish to go around to a nursery full of 5,000. It ain't happening, right? So here's the thing. Jesus, you're not being practical. You're not being a realist. You're not being pragmatic. And I could look at both my elders and say, isn't this part of the balance where we have to be practical as elders, but at the same time, we're in supernatural work. That sometimes being the realist is not what Jesus is calling us to do. They run the numbers, and Jesus isn't asking them to do something that's realistic, that's practical church in your own family and in this church family sometimes the numbers are not going to add up but jesus is still going to call us to do something that's beyond us amen so it says 
They're in a desolate place. You've got to send them out. The disciples' solution to this is send them to a town where there's restaurants. A desolate place. I think the Greek it translates into Cortez. Or Oxford. What kind of restaurants, Toby, they got in Oxford? That's okay. Not good. So they're in a desolate place. It says you've got to get to a place where there's restaurants, at least a convenience store where they can get a little something, something. Long story short, the disciples are saying, Jesus, get these people out of here. It's time to play the song Closing Time and move them along. Let's get back to that, maybe in the back of their mind, let's get back to that vacation idea that we shelved for this teaching time. Your sermon's going a little bit long, Jesus. We need to get back on the carnival cruise. These people need to get anywhere else. And we need to get on with this thing. Send them home. Jesus. Now, the other account, I've never thought of it like this, but the Lord puts this on my heart. In the other account of this same miracle, who's ever heard about the little boy's lunch? Anybody heard this account before? Y'all heard of the little boy? That when they go find it, when Jesus says, go get what you got, find whatever you have, they find a little boy that's got a lunch because some mama was prepared for their son to run after Jesus and needed a lunch. One mom came prepared. There's always that one mom in the group. Packs her son, what, a couple fish, some loaves, sends him with it. So they actually get the loaves and fishes from this boy. Now imagine 5,000 men, maybe 15,000, 20,000 people total see this thing transpiring up on a hilltop. They see Jesus looking just like you are me. They see the disciples get a lunch from a boy. Everybody's hungry. It's late in the day. They give the meal to Jesus. And Jesus starts to pray over it. Now, forget the fact that you know how this story is going to end. There's a miracle. If you're just watching this as a hungry group of 15,000 people, you're like, Jesus just sent his disciples to steal a lunch from a boy and is about to eat in front of all of us. Right? Like Jesus is praying. He's going to pray over this meal and be like, hey, you disciples, feed everybody else. Right? That's what, if you're selfish, that's where it's going. It's like the person where you ask them to pass the ketchup and they use the ketchup first, and then <clears throat> that's a separate teaching, but it's kind of related. Um, so here's the question. Jesus asked a really, really important question. What do you have? He asked this really, really important question. What do you have? Because, see, I think that some of us will serve God, but we think of all the stuff we don't have. And we're always like, God, I would serve you. Thank you, Lord, for that shade. That, the sermon just went longer. Keep it there. Jesus comes to him and doesn't say, think about all the stuff you don't have. Jesus comes to them and says, what do you already have? Many of us will make excuses for why we won't serve God because we don't have the gift like somebody else has a gift. We ain't got the money like somebody else has got money. We ain't got this time. We ain't got this thing. And we'll start to tell God or leadership why we can't serve or we can't do something because of what we don't have instead of saying, God, you've given me something and I'm going to use that something. Jesus asked a critical question. What do you have? The point of this question, by the way, is so that they would know they are grossly inadequate to do what he still called them to do. You're 
the time that you've had the most money in all of your life, gathered into a big pile, Scrooge McDuck. You've been most fresh. Your legs are fresh. Your mind is fresh. The freshest you've ever been. Freshest of the fresh. All the money, fresh and fresh. You still couldn't do what God's going to call you to do. He's having them point out what they already have so that when Jesus is the force multiplier that makes it enough, they will know who to give the credit to. Church, what do you have? Are you teaching cubbies at Awana? Are you helping with food at house church? Right, are you a deacon? Are you an elder? Are you teaching? Are you helping with a prayer group? Are you praying with other people? Are you helping lead worship? Are you helping set up chairs? What do you already got? Like before we get into other stuff, like what has God already given you to serve with? You got lost friends? Praise God. You got somebody to share the gospel with. You got Christian friends to encourage? Praise God. Start there. I heard this great uh, quote by uh, Arthur Ashe. And I think it fits here in what Jesus is doing. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. Start where you are. They're right here. This is where they're going to start. Use what you have. Do what you can. Some of y'all need to write that down. Start where you are. I'm sure you'll do great at the next future church that you're at. But since you're here, go ahead and start where you are. One day you'll move to Texas for a job. But in the meantime, help us reach these pagans. Start where you are. Use what you have. You got a car, you got money, you got gas. You got a brain that remembers some things, right? You got a little bit of Bible up in you. Use what you have and do what you can. If there's an opportunity, you may say, yeah, but that's not what I'm super good at. Who cares? Do what you can, right? And what you will find is you will meet Jesus, the force multiplier in that space, and know him in a way that you would have never known him from the sidelines. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. Jesus asked a really good question to you. And I want you to answer this question in your heart before the Lord. What do you have? Are you hiding it under a bushel basket? Are you building bigger barns to keep it to yourself? Or are you employing that which God has delegated to you as a steward? What do you have? It's not enough? Absolutely, it's not enough. But that's why Jesus wants to use it. Here's the beautiful picture of what Jesus is going to do. As he feeds these people, he's going to show himself to be a better leader than Moses in the wilderness who had bread from heaven and meat from heaven that he gave them. He's going to be a better multiplier than the prophet Elijah who in famine multiplied goods so that a widow and her son would survive. And he's the shepherd of the 23rd Psalm. You may translate that into Colorado for you. Jesus loves you, his sheep, more than people in Durango love their dogs. Don't you feel so loved right now? They put sweaters on them, people. Jesus loves you more than people in Durango love their dogs. He has compassion on this crowd So he's going to get his church involved 
to express his love to them. Now, Jesus, in the midst of their limited resources and exhaustion, asked them what they have left. Show me you're not much because I want you to know who it'll be done through. You can't do this alone because in, in your weakness, I am strong. Not by might, not by power, but by his word, says the Lord. So, verse 39, if I'm on that page, let's, let's finish this up. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So, uh, I, if you've uh, ever been in a charismatic church, sometimes the idea is that organization is in opposition to spontaneity and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the idea that logistics kind of quenches out the miraculous. But what we see here is that organization and logistics precede the miraculous and the supernatural. They're not in opposition to one another, but God has intention. God is a God of order, and they work in concert together so that the miraculous may be most clearly seen. I love that. Here's why I've always said this from my charismatic brothers or, or how they would say they would point and say only speaking in tongues is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in work in your life. The problem in that the same verse you get that from in first Corinthians says that some are given the gift of administration. Now, isn't that curious? Some people are given the gift of language, some miracles, some preaching and teaching. And then there's some average Joe in the side. He gets the gift of having a pocket protector, right? Like he's really good at Excel sheets and budgets and counting money. And that when the Holy Spirit comes on him, he knows how to organize in groups of 150s. He knows how to organize and strategically plan the thing in such a way that the miraculous can be most effectively displayed. Now, I have not always heard that taught in the church, but you see both the miracle working of Jesus and the order and logistics at play in this thing. By the way, I don't know what to do with this, but actually in the Greek, hundreds is called a drinking party. Fifties is called a vegetable garden. They translate it into hundreds and fifties because we wouldn't get that, all right? But apparently fifth, groups of 50 are a vegetable garden and groups of 100 are a drinking party. I have no idea what to do with that information, all right? Except for maybe your drinking parties have not actually been drinking. They've come up short. All right. <clears throat> Hundreds and fifties, and they organized them on the ground. And taking, verse 41, and taking the five loaves uh, and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. By the way, church, this is still what we do. We take what Jesus gives us and we set it before the people. This is called ministry. And every Christian's called to it. To get something that God has given us and to set it before people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate and were satisfied. I love that. Satisfaction in a dissatisfied world. And they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of the fish. Here's the way I translate that. Jesus is calling out the 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 doubt of the disciples who said it couldn't be done by packing them 12 doggy bags 
for the road. Right? It's like, you, you believe we couldn't fit, feed all these people? We're going to have 12 sack lunches for you to take on to the next thing, which is awesome. By the way, 12 in Hebrew is the number for kingdom or administration. It's used over uh, 180 times in scripture. And it's to say here, Jesus is organizing the kingdom in such a way that everyone would be satisfied. Which actually recalls down to this other story. 12 baskets, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. God called his people out of Egypt and they went into the wilderness in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And as they went into the wilderness, they complained because as they came out of slavery, they said, we used to have what in Egypt? Meat pots. And so God provides manna for them from heaven, bread. But the bread wasn't enough. They got so tired of it. They said, God, we don't want just bread. We want meat. And so there's this story in the Old Testament about the dissatisfaction of his people with his provision. And they had the presence of God in a pillar of fire and in a cloud. And God, in his mercy and grace to them, provides meat and he provides bread and he provides his presence. It's a story about a desolate place. You go on into the temple and in the temple and the sacrifices in the temple, the sacrifices were of meat and they had offerings of bread because it was a continual reminder of God's provision. Then you come to this story. God's presence is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in a desolate place to dissatisfy people, he is satisfying them with bread and meat. You're going to go on, and if you continue to read these accounts about the resurrection, after Jesus rises from the dead, he does two things with his disciples. One, he meets Peter for a fish fry, and he breaks bread with his disciples. It's said that the disciples didn't even really grasp who he was until he broke bread with them. And then you continue to read in the New Testament, and you'll get to Revelation where the picture of what it means to be with Jesus forever is to table with him. It's to break bread with him. See, this story, one of the reasons it's so critical and so important is that Jesus is a better Moses and he's, he's got a new people of God who are gonna be truly satisfied with him, the bread from heaven. This is a picture of eternity to come. I don't, I don't know about you, if this hits you the same way it is for me. I grew up in Oklahoma where we got good fried fish. One day we're going to have a fish fry with Jesus in heaven. And that, boy, that just speaks to my heart language. You know what I'm saying? This anticipates the kingdom coming. So lastly, we're going to table with him forever. Jesus is the bread and Jesus is the message. What Jesus gives the disciples, they set before the people. This is what my brothers and sisters, I've tried to do to you today. I've tried to stack the wood knowing that God's got to light the fire in your heart and mind. I've tried to lay before you bread. I've tried to lay before you the word. But here's the truth. Unless God gets a hold of your heart and convicts you over what is here, it's just words from a, what is this, a trailer for horses? Right? It's nothing. Nothing we've done here matters. If God doesn't make it more. Jesus Christ is the presence of God who came to your desolate wilderness place. 
died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, that you might be eternally satisfied in him. That you might not be out of joint with your creator, but you might know him and find life and peace in his name. Can I pray for you? I don't know what you think you need from God. Whether it be more money, more bread, more possessions, or you're looking at all the things you don't have. But I would encourage you right now to look at the things he's already given you and to follow those breadcrumbs back to a heart that loves you like a shepherd. If you're here today and you'd say, I've never trusted my shepherd with my path and my purpose. I want to invite you right now, just between you and the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Saved from your lostness, saved from your wandering. The Bible says that those that call upon him in faith and that confess his name, he saves to the uttermost. If that's you, don't wait. And then there's others here, my brothers and sisters, God's called you to do way more than you can do. And it's going to be the joy of your life seeing God take your not enough and making it 12 basketfuls of too much. He's going to take your weakness and make you strong. Maybe today God's convicted you that what you already have and where you're already at, you're not being faithful. And so I want to call you to repent. He's got something egging on your heart that you've got to start, something you've got to plug into, someplace you've got to get your feet already moving. That's not about me. That's about between you and the Lord. Would you get right with him? Gracious Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We praise you because the mountains were formed by your fingertips and the deep places ceaselessly worship you. You created all things for your glory and our hearts are restless until we enter into that praise song. Father, I pray for those here that might not know you, who are lost. God, would you bring them to a place that they hear the shepherd's voice and they respond and follow. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are squandering the good gifts you have given them. God, would you awaken them to their purpose in following you. God, would you make them bold to give you what little they have and see you do the miraculous with it. Father, these are your people, sheep of your pasture. Come and do in their hearts what you see fit to do. We pray in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Would you stand and respond in worship?